Welcome to the Stories of Dutch Ingenuity podcast. Although all of our podcast guests are not born Dutchies, they are living and working in the Netherlands and are thought leaders, change makers, status quo challengers and visionaries in their worlds. Our guests are taking action on big audacious goals relating to entrepreneurship, sustainable development, environmental issues, circular economy, alternate food systems, climate solutions, renewable energy, waste solutions, and many, many more. Through this podcast series, we will explore their worlds through storytelling, knowing that this is a critical path to rewriting a future story that we can be proud of, where we can move people to take collective action. Be sure to grab a notepad and pen as these are words to take action on. Welcome to the Stories of Dutch Ingenuity podcast series. I'm Catherine van der Meulen and joining me today is Marjolein Bress, CEO at Food Valley in the Netherlands, based here at Wageningen University. Thank you so much for sharing your time and allowing me to come into your space this afternoon. I really appreciate that. So tell us, who is Marjolein Bras? I am a nature lover and I... <laughs> there I go with my one take. It's a hard word to, it's a hard thing to answer, I think. Who it am I? Hard. Yeah. We were just laughing about how many takes do you need. I was like, I'm usually a one take girl, but who am I? That has so multifaceted and so uh, so multidimensional. But uh, I love to um, I love to look at myself as a person that cares. Cares about um, the environment, cares about Mother Earth, cares about uh, the people around me, cares about uh, my own health and well-being, and likes to live uh, um, life with uh, attention, with uh, full dedication to to create and live the uh, and contribute to the world mm-hmm. as such. Yeah, that's that's me, and I uh, find a way to do so. So I like it. I like to do it personally, but also in uh, working life. That is one for me. Nice. And so you work here in Wageningen, in the area, but you live in Amsterdam. Tell yeah. us about life in life in Amsterdam. I, I think it's quite different to Wageningen, the, the style of lifestyle here. But tell us a little bit about life in Amsterdam for you. Well, the funny thing is when I got my job interview uh, a couple of years ago with the board of directors, they, uh, they said, are you sure that you, you know where you're heading into? You know, it's like Wageningen. I was like, come on, guys, it's 50-minute drive. It might be slightly different in culture, but on the bigger scheme of things, we are a, we are a small country, and uh, it's a, it's a it's a different place than Amsterdam. But surely, uh, we also work with uh, the Germans and the French and uh, the the Singaporeans and uh, the Kiwis. So yeah. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. It's it's not so much the I think the regional culture that would hold me back, but it's. Uh, I think it adds to diversity of things. So I'm not, and by the way, I'm, my my family comes from the east of the Netherlands, which is only two and a half hour drive, but it's twice as far from Amsterdam as Wageningen. So it's it's all it's uh, it's a small country, and uh, I don't quite see that difference. What I do know is obviously Amsterdam is a bit is is different in lifestyle. People go out more, and uh, but uh, I like the combination of working in one space and. Uh, living in the other and in Amsterdam uh, you obviously have the place to live in the, at the canals and in the center and a uh, world heritage but uh, uh, I live in Amsterdam but on the outskirts in an old fisherman fishers, uh, fisherman f- uh, village it's uh, it's uh, it has all kinds of little monuments 
little dike houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's uh, in the city, but still outside. So it uh, also provides me with the necessary uh, time to reflect and stand still. And there is like a big uh, load of water in front of me. And there's a farmer uh, in the back. And uh, so it has uh, city people, but also local uh, locals that have been there for centuries and generations. So it's a good mix of uh, important uh, and, and locals and it, uh, it again gives me a different viewpoint of life so i like it and close to nature to connect back to the things that you love and who you are as yeah. a person it's a lot of water and a lot of air i always say and behind the house we have a couple of big trees so that also gives us some uh, grounding to uh, to where it is that we are so uh, i like both yeah so you have a background in energy, shifting into renewable energy, and now with Food Valley. Tell us more about that journey from where you were to now where you are. Yeah, it's, it has been quite a journey indeed. It's um, um, when I graduated from uh, the Erasmus University with a degree in business, I, um, I had a couple of choices. That's how it worked uh, 25 years ago. Um, one is, okay, you can work for consultancy, the other one was fast-moving consumer goods, and another one is work for uh, the energy sector, and I figured, well, we always need energy. Uh, I was attracted to the, uh, the oil and gas industry, also for the reason that, in my dreams, I would be working on an oil rig, five weeks on, five weeks off, traveling somewhere in Africa or Asia or whatever it is, but I figured, I noticed soon enough that... Uh, for uh, someone with a business degree, there's no really a s- spot on the on the rig. So, uh, but I ended up working after my graduation and my thesis for Shell. I ended up working for ExxonMobil, and uh, in the field of natural gas. And in natural gas, uh, the Dutch have a lot of gas. Um, they uh, uh, we found a big uh, uh, reservoir uh, in the 60s, and. Um, the Dutch government has a large share, 50%, but two other oil companies have another uh, part, 20, 20, 20, 25%. And I worked for Exxon and was advising the country director on the decision to be taken within the gas construct, the joint venture, on import of gas, export of gas, and the uh, production of third-party gas, other fields. And um, that was an interesting first experience uh, sometimes I could call it Excel spreadsheet management <laughs> but it's uh, it, uh, it also also helped me to position myself to be eventually being part of an, uh, an uh, secret team we called it gamma and with that team the organization looked at dismantling the gas out into infrastructure and trend uh, and transport and trade uh, upon request of the European Commission, who said that they wanted to liberalize the uh, gas market to allow other players also to enter the national markets and enter that transport and infrastructure, and you had to sort of split it up. And the Dutch were the first, and also, unfortunately, one of the last, so we were ahead of the game. But it also made it possible for me to join that specific project and see, okay, how do you split a company? How do you do that with, uh, with regard to... Uh, which was very interesting also that I got sent to London for a couple of years uh, to work as senior business developer for um, uh, the natural gas liquid business. And um, in that role, um, but also working for Exxon, I noticed a couple of things. I got closer to what I, as a person, personally like and am good at. And one of the things I noticed is working, obviously, for a large corporation like this with about $60 billion in, uh, in assets, uh, 
is uh, is that you have to obviously security reasons uh, also aside obviously um, you have to um, be very much within the boundaries yeah so you have to sort of follow the delegated authority guidelines etc which didn't quite fit the personality uh, the work was pretty technical which I like but also also didn't suit that well and the last bit uh, which I find it's more and more important that you know uh, renewable energy sources uh, but also renewable energy technologies uh, I, I could see that were actually necessary for future use also seeing the fact that global warming started to become more of a, a familiar and uh, more of a, a known factor but ExxonMobil wasn't quite up for that so um, it was time for me to move but I didn't quite know where to go um, so at that time I, uh, uh, I was on a holiday in Sri Lanka and the tsunami took place and I stayed there for a while just because uh, with all the footage that I had and all uh, the relationships that I had in London I was able to get actually quite some money in and the larger organizations uh, normally on the field like the Red Cross and the United Nations etc and uh, they, they weren't able to arrive yet in Sri Lanka and individuals like myself had that opportunity to, to stay and stay a bit longer to to the immediate humanitarian aids before all the other organizations would come in. And that would actually gave me, uh, stay a bit longer for the holidays, stayed six uh, weeks in total, in which I worked in the field by helping people in uh, local hospitals to uh, providing food, etc. And um, and because we were the only people actually of the, uh, um, of the uh, inventory and, and the food and all the necessities in, so we were able to divide that in that hub, and when I went back to London, I was like, okay, maybe this is the opportunity to go and go back and maybe use some additional funding that I got from my business relations and spend time there to A, help and B, figure out what it is that I want to do. So I went back and uh, set up a, a couple of uh, hotels jointly with, uh, with locals, uh, uh, a music school coming from my own personal family. I've got a musical family, uh, so that, that part my interest. Um, we've got a lot of music instruments for music school, etc. And a bakery, uh, and so a small marketplace. So it was quite a lot of money and quite a lot of uh, things to do. And at some point, I got a, um, I got a motorbike accident, and um, I recovered a couple of weeks in, uh, in a, a good hospital in uh, in, in the capital. But then after that, I had to repeat, uh, go back to the Netherlands, where I had me living, because I lived in London, so I had to go back to my parents, uh, which I did for a while, um, having to undergo more surgery. But as you can imagine, uh, being in 20s, uh, back at your parents, uh, I don't know about you, but uh, for me, at some point, I was like, okay, I need to get out of here before anyone gets killed. And one of my friends said, okay, I have a, I have a house for you in Amsterdam, uh, he has got a construction company and he said you can stay there for half a year until I've got the permits uh, which I did and I actually never left Amsterdam as, as a resident uh, but I kept working internationally but I just uh, kept on looking for jobs that did fit my profile and, uh, and also my values and norms better uh, which um, um, drove me actually to work for a company that works on uh, developing Roots to sustainable energy and sustainable plastics from sugars, mm -hmm. and did the business development for them. Um, 
And after that, I went to work for an organization, uh, Navigant, that is an international consultancy on sustainable energy and climate negotiations. I led two teams, one was sustainable bioenergy and the other one sustainable transport. And especially from the first one, I got to think about, okay, wait a second, if we've got biomass and you put it into energy, how sustainable you do that? Because we gave advice to the European Commission and other intergovernmental institutions on the sustainability of biomass. Still, you use it only once and then it's gone, but is it the highest potential value? You can also use it for materials, for feed, for food, for pharma. So then we got into that question, okay, what's the best possible use of those energy, of that energy source? Uh, or is it, should it be even energy? And then it got me into the concept of circular economy. Like, okay, but how do you actually use whatever is available in nature and in our environment for the, for the highest value? How do you, how do you make sure that you prolong what you have and that you revalue what you used to see as waste? Mm. And then you come into questions like, but how do you organize that? If you have a system that's currently derived that you take something from nature, you make it, you throw it out, and you take something new and you burn it or you landfill it and so that you don't actually put value in preserving, but just in consuming, into something else. And that triggered me into developing more on the concept of circular economy and also my interest in how you actually systemically change. So that's uh, definitely one of the roots. So can you share how these past experiences of your former world have led you to the work that you do now at Food Valley? Definitely. Um, when I left uh, the international consultancy, I, uh, I went to work with a former minister and professor of ecosystem development, Jacqueline Kramer. And she taught me that if you really want to change the system, you need to be able to, A, set a vision where you need to go. And you need to be agile and entrepreneurial enough to see, okay, if this, if this is not the route, then you have to reverse and take another one. Um, you need to make sure that each and everyone sits on their role and that you uh, find allies in that way forward. You don't need everyone to change, but you need a couple. Wherever they are, with whatever organization they sit in, you can see them, you can identify them, and you have to find them as allies. And with her, we set up a large transition program in the metropolitan region on, in which the basics is that you have to bring supply and demand forward simultaneously at all times, because if you don't do that, uh, one, one party goes to say, I'm not going to produce something different because there is no demand. Or people say, it's not good enough. Or the other say, I'm not going to buy it because it's too expensive. Like sustainable is expensive. Or something new is too expensive. But that's only because you don't have enough mass. So in order to change that system, she taught me, you need to make sure that in you always need to organize that you have enough buying power for the new and that you move supply and demand forward and condition uh, su uh, subsequently. And that's more or less the essence, how I see it, of transitioning into a new system. That you don't let one innovation just do it by themselves, but that you condition that the whole market is created at once. And you can do that as an organization, as an individual, but you also make sure that all the other players in that field take their role. And I, I notice I'm quite good at seeing where things need to go and also seeing who can help me and who I can help subsequently on that route to get there 
by mobilizing them to work in consortia or to work on a specific topic and also to make sure that all the conditions subsequently are set right by making the the, the people from the government do the right things on legislation, on permits, uh, that the investors are ready whenever it's necessary, that the financial instruments are... So that whole thing of moving things forward uh, works for energy and circular, but also, obviously also works for the food transition. And Food Valley, the organization that I'm currently leading, uh, got new money in, in 2019 from one governmental entity that said, we would like you to look at the food system as a whole and see how we, how you as an organization can make best impact by applying that methodology to setting up new programs. So they were looking specifically for someone with international experience, but also a feel for transitioning, not just project work, but really true transition work. And that's a, and I saw that job, and uh, as a pit bull, I, uh, <laughs> I said, this is my living lab for everything I've learned so far. And we're now three years further down the line, and I, or four years almost. And, um, and we build upon what I've been taught, but also what we've done over the past four years. And we, uh, we developed our own practical approach to change in a systemic way that uh, eventually leads to new businesses and vital sectors, but, but, but on a systemic way, so that you uh, also look at it each and every opportunity from a systemic way. So can you share more about what the holistic vision of Food Valley is and maybe some examples of how that actually is being activated in that systemic approach? Yeah, for, the, for that, it might be nice to give you an example of uh, large initiatives that we're doing that way in the area of protein transition. We have three, three themes that we work on, food and health, circular egg, and protein transition, and they all obviously integrated. Um, for protein transition, um, I take you back to 1992. I'm not to tell 30 years of experience, but in that time, the European Commission got a trade agreement with North America, in which European financial institutions would get access to the North American market, and in return, agri-food companies would get access to the European market with their commodity products. As there's large fields in the USA, you can imagine that with that coming in, it had lower cost price, and as such, the, the, the products coming in had, were lower value as the products that the farmers produced in Europe. And in Europe, we had like decades and centuries of experience in producing legumes and uh, fava beans and uh, soy, uh, the favacci, the protein-rich crops. However, from one day to the next, those farmers were out of business on those specific crops because the cheaper crops came in. And and competed with them obviously for it. Um, fast forward 30 years, uh, Europe wants to be more protein self-sufficient because obviously of all the geographic, uh, geopolitical uh, turmoil and uh, they reconsidered their own uh, food policy. And we have the farm to fork strategy in Europe and then based on that, the European Commission also asked the member states to come up with a national protein strategy to ensure that there's enough protein whenever necessary. Uh, so each government in Europe went to work and derived from that protein strategy, they were looking at how can we start? 
and we as food seller we have on each specific field we have the people who are the heart and the eyes and the hands of the protein transition or circular ag. So I have Jeroen Mensen, he's been working on protein transition for 20 years, he has had his own company, he's the first alternatives to meat. He's actually the first suppliers to the vegetarian butcher, so that's him, and he now works in, in protein transition in Food Valley. And he said, okay, what we would like to do is one of those routes from the national protein strategy could potentially be uh, that we start the increase of protein-rich crops produced in the Netherlands and beyond, but starting in the Netherlands. And then the farmers obviously say, I'm not going to do that. 30 years ago, I had a business or my dad had a business or my granddad had a business, but now I don't. Uh, I'm only moving if every, everyone else moves simultaneously. And that's the supply and demand bringing it forward simultaneously. Um, so what we've done done is we have done a couple of things. One, we have organized the farmers in a producer organization, which is an organization that you, by law in Europe, you can, under certain circumstances, put producers together so they can make price negotiations mm. with the retailers. We also put processes in that, uh, in that uh, consortium uh, crop innovation companies. Uh, because obviously climate change also influences what you have to do with your crops and and so you have to also start innovating on that bit retailers caterers etc local governments national government for long-term view for uh, transition financing etc so in the end 72 organizations work together now on 50 different initiatives from uh, crop innovation programs to uh, new facilities in certain provinces to process those bees to to caterers that have them two or three days of the week on the menus, you know, that we have more bean meals. So we have we created a bean deal where 72 different organizations jointly work for the coming years on getting those farmers back into 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 check. And that kind of work is very pre-competitive and is also before it actually turns into value. And that's the kind of work that we do. So it creates value, it creates a market, it creates a new industry, but not yet. Eventually, a lot of ventures come out of it, and those are financeable, and there's investors, etc. That is the part that the market starts to get interested, but we're often before that. So within Food Valley, how is that activated every day? You have obviously so many diverse stakeholders involved and people involved in the organization. How is that activated across your network each day? Yeah, I think where we come from is that Food Valley was a strong network organization for uh, for a very long time. Um, so we have a very we have a strong brand, and um, some of the people just want to be part of it because we have a very strong network. On the 50 organizations or partners so if you meet and greet it's and uh, get the knowledge and what where does the tailwind from come from that that is enough but what we have done over the past four years you know really working systemically on on change and having those programs in place like the bean deal i just talked about um being part of it is not enough anymore not for us but also not for the the, the parties that we come across in the food system because seeing the current developments and circumstances in the world we all uh, everyone worries about the, the co2 emissions about obesity about the health costs uh, 
um, but also about their own existence, their uh, sustainability of their business, uh, not so much only in ecological, but also in, in economic sense, that people really want to get engaged in also the solution. And what we do is we say we have signaled what, what needs to be done, and yes, by joining us, you can also get engaged in the solution. And that changes then from being pure network where you come, people are called member, member, and we said you can't become a member anymore. We'd like you to become a partner, and partner means two ways, yeah. And um, so we have two things that people can get involved in more actively. One is the initiatives that I talked about, you know, the, the, the multi-stakeholder coalitions that we build to drive supply and demand forward simultaneously. But the other one is uh, uh, innovation communities. And for innovation communities, it is a place where you put people together for a longer period of time to have them actually work together across sectors where they usually don't touch. To give a short example on that, is uh, the topic of food and health. Um, Judith van Horst, she's the lead on the topic. Three, uh, three, three and a half years ago, she talked about 200 different stakeholders in that field, from insurers to doctors to GPs, uh, uh, but also food companies, etc. And uh, how the, the question actually was, how are we going to tackle uh, obesity and malnutrition? And precise nutrition was often put forward as a means to address it. But then she got in the discussion, what is it? How can you earn money with it? Oh, by the way, I'm already working on it. Yeah, correct, but from a research perspective, insurance, retail, but not jointly. And by the way, your proposition doesn't quite yet touch the intrinsic motivation. Um, precise attrition is using digital tools to give you a targeted advice on what to eat. More or less, that's it. And um, but it only helps if it's really suited. And now a lot of different propositions of companies give you your allergy test, what you shouldn't eat, or um, it will give you a, a recipe based upon your family composition or your your personal preferences or or your diet. But not as a combination. Not like okay, this is a combination of data that finally gives you the advice, okay, you need to eat green asparagus this week, for instance. So that targeted. So if you really want to touch the intrinsic motivation of you and I, the 70% the of the world population that has a phone, but is not a top athlete, or maybe you are, maybe, but <laughs> the, and also not like the lower 30% of the population with the, the, uh, the socio-economic positions that uh, have other imminent problems. Uh, but if you would like to read 70% of the mass market, you need to find something that is actually suited for those people. So what she, what she first did was she put people together uh, to de define the pos position paper on personal situation, which was 56 organizations from 19 different countries. And they, they defined the definition, the barriers, uh, the possible business that people can do, etc. And then as a next step, she put all those together or partly in an innovation community where for the next two years they've been working on finding solutions for the barriers for change and joining propositions. And now there's one organization that, or one proposition for an organization. That so if you could think in your wildest imagination and visually create uh, a world for us, what does a transformation of the food system look like? 
my transformation would definitely uh, touch on a couple of points that I uh, find that we as uh, earthlings can uh, do better. Uh, it would be a very much a regenerative uh, way of looking at producing food, not against nature, but with nature. I think nature is a very powerful uh, uh, self-sustaining tool that you, um, once you get a hang of it again, because we have to relearn, we can actually supply for an abundance of food mm. wherever it's applicable. So, um, and that means that maybe at some places you should do more and some places you should do less. But what we've done now, we have done, we have uh, started the agricultural production in some areas like the Dutch. Eh? We have a very uh, uh, beautiful. Uh, um, nutritious soil and we, uh, we have a true delta in which we uh, are used to producing quite a lot of uh, food uh, products. Um, but there's other pockets in the world that through re-looking re at nature can also uh, provide uh, that wealth. Um, and by doing so we also are able to I think supply more jobs in those areas and uh, restore nature. As, uh, as is necessary. So uh, that will be my uh, vision of it. So really nature is our vision because nature has the opportunity to replenish itself and regenerate itself. If we were to leave it to go wild, we kind of need to leave things to go wild a little bit, not only in our own imaginations, but in our, in our food systems and nature being our greatest opportunity to learn from. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah, and you can only do that if you also look at what people do. So um, you can't just continue in the way we are with uh, some people eating uh, still seven days a week uh, meat. You also need to rebalance that bit. So um, um, if you if you like to, then you, you need to do a lot less of a lot of stuff and a bit more of the other. So uh, um, we need animals as part of a food system. It is, but we also need to make sure that we don't waste anything not in the system but also once it reaches our plates i mean for some of the countries uh, it's the uh, 30 to 40 percent of the food is being wasted once it hits the uh, refrigerators and our plates so it will ask that we also are more conscious with what it is that we get what we eat how we prepare it and that we don't waste it so it's animals that we need for fertilizer, that we need for, uh, we need uh, we need to make sure that we're conscious to reuse and use everything that we have. So it's a, it's a, the ideal situation is would be coming back to that people are more conscious of what it is that we have and how we can best preserve it. Because I think if you treat nature well, it will be abundant. It will give us love in return. Definitely. So can you share why compelling stories are so important to being able to change the narrative on our food systems because it's people have a resistance to, against being told what they can't do anymore i think that's why you need enough so like don't eat don't eat meat for don't example meat. i will have meat tonight it's yeah. the same for diets i mean if you tell people i'm on the if people think okay i'm on the diet from the first of january 2021 then, uh, then January 1st, or maybe the 2nd, they will have an ice cream. 
human behavior. Yeah, that's human what, what we don't, what we're told we can't have. We you want, have. we want more. You want to have. Yeah. yeah. So I think the appealing vision, but that's that accounts actually for uh, a lot of topics. What we uh, what we saw during the elections in the Netherlands, we have uh, actually we we got an, an, an a couple of parties in elected that have a. Uh, a uh, narrative against uh, foreigners um, or a nostalgic past and I said that because if you don't have an appealing story for the future which obviously a lot of uh, um, socialistic or left parties uh, have then you have or environmental parties or whatever it is or parties of uh, progression they, they're not able to really put that down as a as a as an as an appealing perspective. So it's like you can't do this, and climate change is coming, and yes, there is uh, there's uh, fugitives, and you have to get immigrants, so you have to let them in because that's what the trade agreement says, etc. With that, you provide a lot of things that people can't do anymore and are restricted, and there's no jobs and no houses, etc. Then people refer back to the times that there was no climate uh, change and there was uh, ample houses and the kids could move house after they would finish high school because there were places to go to in Amsterdam and all. And, and, and you know, you could fly around uh, and uh, you would buy whatever and no one would look at you. So that's, but obviously that's past and it will never come back. Mm. But if you don't provide for that appealing story what it can be, then the other one will prevail and that will put us right into populism. Because everyone has the same worries around the world. Like, how can I make sure that for me and my family, but mostly for my family, my children, etc., it can have a good, decent future? No one is really against the other, I guess. But it's more like, okay, the, the, the solution to the same worries is just different for each and every one of us. So if you can provide a story like, okay, you can actually contribute to that well-being, and we're all in it together and, and let the, for instance, the larger polluters pay and not you as a, as a person with a, with a high energy uh, uh, bills for because then, then you will have a, then you will have a different uh, appealing story. So I think it should, the story could be more beautiful. So we, from Voodfellow, because we have so many different partners and different perspectives and different views, we never say you can't do this or can't do that. I always say, if you sit on the ends of the poles, you won't be able to see the other one. You have to go straight through the middle and listen to all the different perspectives and say, okay, given all that uh, controversy and given everything that we have to deal with, you can do it well if you just balance it a little bit more. Don't feel you have to quit everything, but do it more conscious. It's a bit like the meat and protein part that we were just talking about before. It's the same as organisations. If you tell an organisation to not do something, they're going to continue on that pursuit to, you know, make more money at the cost of, you know, whichever stakeholder. Um, so I guess it's just about reframing, reframing those words so that it's actually our own ideas and for our own educated decisions that we are making those decisions ourselves. For your own with, children. For your own children with the yeah. right information yeah. around you. Some of the topics that we are talking about, you know, we're talking about food security and we're talking about equality and we're talking about climate. Some of those topics can be quite heavy topics and we are always trying to make this discussion a little bit more fun. Yeah. How does Food Valley bring more fun into these conversations? So it's not the doom and gloom and the heaviness, yeah. but the lightness and the fun. And 
I think we can move people differently if we have more fun with it. And by nature, the Dutch are a fun bunch of people. So how do we bring more fun into this conversation? It's very rightful. Uh, it's actually a very rightfully true. It's a, it's a, it's a very good question. It's, um, uh, I was in London a couple of uh, months ago and I met this guy. Uh, I was at a food conference, but more on the you know, sustainable food transition. And I met this guy and he moved to this, this bubble um, from the hospitality sector. And I said, how are you doing? He said, well, actually, my goodness, you make it so heavy, all of you. And it actually it just sort of woke me up a bit. I was like, uh, oh yeah, he's absolutely right because you know we all talk about what it what it is that we need to do. But food is emotion, food is culture, food is right, food is fun, food connects, food is food is the best topic to actually have fun and commitment on because it is everyone has something with food. So uh, uh, what do we do? We uh, Definitely, our narrative is the narrative of hope and opportunity. It's, uh, in our perspective, not a lot about what what can, what can and will go wrong. We have the data, obviously we're aware, but it's also, for instance, the, the, the initiatives that we start all, all go about how can, we, uh, how can we help you move your organization or your business into the next phase? Or how can we make sure that that farmer that is doing something else is also be being seen as the farmer and is being is a Hank and a Pete and a Jan and a John and it's it's a Joanna and it's a Albertina. It's it's the people that make the difference. So we make our work extremely personal. So what with everything that we do, we it is about transitioning, change. It's all about the person. So that's with the work that we do. We very much pay a lot of attention to that individual within that specific organization that has the guts to join what it is that we do and help that specific person to move forward. And by making it so personal, it's also easier for people to actually join and, and, and progress. So what do we do to make it more fun? Obviously, we eat a lot and we love food and we have a lot of sessions on food, but we also make it very personal. And that means uh, that people share um, what it is that works, that doesn't work, that people uh, show vulnerability, that they also um, share that it's not always easy, but that uh, that there is progression, uh, what it is that they need. Um, so by calling people by their names and by making it a very personal uh, business, uh, I think uh, you also can make it fun because uh, that puts a little of uh, relativation on, on everything that we do. So bringing the humanness into quite a um, potentially a fragmented sometimes yeah. uh, food system, but actually bringing the more human elements into yeah. it and making them human centric, really. Yeah, and, and, and no matter where you where you come from or what your background is, you will find each other on through food. Through food, yeah, yeah definitely. You find each other through food and through your wishes and hopes, and um, eventually you. Through conversation, you'll see that it's just a human being like yourself, you know. Even with Gouda sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> so if we're thinking about the transition to a new food system, there's obviously the approach of needing to finance that future and how do we actually transition to that future. Can you talk to us about what your role as Food Valley is in supporting the transition to that different food system? Yeah. 
Yeah, good point. You mentioned financing because what we often see is that the the, the the way of financing from institutional banks is still very much focused on something that they do know, but not something that they don't know. So they don't really know what regenerative practices will deliver and when they're being paid back. They don't know what organic, well, maybe a bit better, what they will be delivering. But they do know what it means to extend an extra stall, stall, is that how you call it, from the pig stall or uh, cows. So they know... 40 more cows will deliver this. In New Zealand, probably how many head of cattle or yeah. how many how many yeah. sheep that we, how yeah. many more sheep we need. Absolutely. More tangible things, right? More tangible and yeah. an Excel spreadsheet and then somewhere else, more money and then, oh, yeah. That Pretty, equates to this. That's, that's fine. So, so it requires something from the financial institutions um, and we are a good party to signal what it is that they need. To give you uh, maybe an example of, one of the other things that we work on in the area of regenerative agriculture. So we have cooperation with various partners across Europe in which uh, we look at different landscapes, is what we call them, where groups of farmers jointly are able to transition into new practices. It usually takes seven years. You need to get the, used to the new soil, the, the way of farming, the, the, the soils and the crops are obviously used to inputs. Um, so you, you say, okay, leave it to the farmers. It's not up to us. But what we see is that that new way of farming needs financing. And we can signal with our partners, who are also lots of banks, that that needs time and how it's being looked at. But also, if you farm in a different way, next to the food, you also add different value. Uh, water management, soil management, planting trees, etc. So we also have... Uh, um, sessions on how to valueize that additional farming and additional benefits that that regenerative farming brings. So that's on that bit. So we always look like, okay, what do we need to do from a role or what does the financial institution, the investors, maybe the business. But one other element in that aspect is, for instance, um, large corporations or companies that source the products that come from the fields. And um, Especially if you're transitioning into new uh, practices, one year the the produce is nothing, the other one it will be. We had lupines here. The last year it rained too much, and some farmers were too early with planting seeds, and then it was too dry. So so it it, it uh, so twenty percent only made it to 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 getting a good produce of the fields. The other eighty percent with their new crops, unexperienced, didn't manage to. So also those, you need to sort of help in that transition mm. by making sure that whatever something comes off the fields, that you buy it, but for good prices. And then you don't expect a 100% produce. It's uncertain. So there's three elements already. One is paying for the additional value that it brings and who's going to do that. We help that discussion. The other one is financial institution to value that transition and also different way of producing better and then getting companies to source differently and preferably together, so that's mass. So that's also, so th th this exactly shows the complexity of change because you need to, you need to get everyone to their role constantly. And by doing so, that, that, that actually, you slowly move forward in your change. So finally, what are three actions that you would like for our listeners to take from this discussion to embed into their worlds?
you have a choice every day on what you buy and eat. When you take that decision a bit more conscious, then it will be helpful. So try eating one or two days a week less meat or no meat. That will be a good one. And the other one is don't throw out food that you don't eat in the bin, but try to be creative with uh, making a soup or whatever, or don't buy it at all, just be careful. So that's very easy, easy stuff to do with regard to food. And um, the third one is we all have, next to being a consumer, we also have opportunity to do different in the roles that we take. We have various roles, being a mother or a sister or a teacher or a, we all in our roles, also the opportunity to to make a difference by making sure that the decisions that are taken are being for a more sustainable food system and not so much against it. So whether you get questions easily and often like people say, what can I do in my role as uh, an accountant? There's always something that you can do as whatever it is uh, in your in your in your daily job. So. Uh, um, be a good example to the rest and uh, whenever there's a choice to be made that uh, either helps us forward or puts us back then uh, think twice and so really no matter what role that we are in we can all be climate leaders and we can all be part of the transition to a better and more sustainable absolutely world. If only through your own consumption and what you give your uh, the people around you and how you, how you show that um, but also not making good choices in uh, in your daily roles. There is opportunity, and I also see that the collective, the power of the people. I mean, once we get that understanding of the power that we can do ourselves by making that change, it only needs twelve percent of people to change the system. Huh? Uh, so, uh, I, what percentage would we be at now? Do you think of the world food system? What percentage? <laughs> Okay, so we've got eight percent to eight percent to go. So if we yeah. can radicalize plant-rich diets yeah. Um, yeah. and a, make more conscious choices, would be a good place to start on the decisions that we make every day. Absolutely. Yeah. Be conscious. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing your world and your wisdom with our wonderful listeners all over the globe. Thank you for having me, and uh, good luck in your endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Stories of Dutch Ingenuity podcast. Be sure to share some of the learnings you've uncovered in this episode with your networks as it is through knowledge sharing that we can start to move the dial and take collective action. I'm Catherine van der Meulen, founder of this podcast series and passionate about continuous education to be the change that we want to see in the world.